It's Wednesday, June 15th, 2022, and this is KBIA's Views of the News. Our weekly roundtable on media behaviors comes to you from the Futures Lab studio at the Reynolds Journalism Institute. I'm Amy Simons, and here with me are my colleagues, Kathy Kiley and Ron Kelly. On our program this week, the tale of two amendments. We're going to talk about the challenges facing journalists covering the school shooting in Uvalde and the pushback they're getting from police and pro-gun rights activists. An Australian newspaper pulls a column which threatened to out actress Rebel Wilson. And when the team owns a piece of the network in Chicago, there's been questions about the editorial integrity of both NBC Sports Chicago and the Marquee Network after some questionable editing choices. There's a lot more that we hope to get to before our time is up today, but we're going to start with the January 6th hearings in Washington. Now, Ron, Kathy and I talked a lot about this with Damon Keith. So last week, and so I knew Kathy was popping the popcorn for Thursday night's <laughs> hearing and was planning on watching the whole thing. What about you? Have you been watching? What have you been seeing or thinking there? Yeah, so I watched Thursday night, okay. uh, prime time, but mm-hmm. I did not watch the daytime. Uh, but I thought it was very intriguing. Uh, very, I, I kept my eyes and I watched the whole thing. Um, I thought it was very well produced. I thought it, they did a very good job in presenting the case. Um, I think they were right to probably use um, James Goldstone. Yeah, we're going to talk to him yeah, about, about him about, a little bit. Uh, to put together yeah. how they presented the evidence and the facts, uh, because I thought it was very riveting, uh, and it kept me glued to the to the screen, actually. Glued, and it, it was a very emotional thing to watch. Yeah. I was sitting and watching it, texting with friends, with family, and at one point, one of my friends told me she was crying, and I said, the more I think about it, I'm feeling that anxious feeling in my stomach. I felt watching it live on January 6th mm-hmm. to see all of that again. Part of that probably intentional in in the way it was done with that producing. Yeah, I've covered a lot of congressional hearings, and this was by far the most disciplined. Um, I mean, it was very well produced, and uh, and I think that is what gave it its impact. I think what you're talking about, the emotion, uh, was largely because that room was packed with um, officers uh, from the Capitol Hill Police Force who were there to show solidarity with their colleague who was testifying. And, um, you know, I think it's hard to look at a room full of people who work in the Capitol and not feel the emotion. And, uh, and I think the members felt it too. I mean, I certainly, I'd worked for years in, on Capitol Hill and I'm still shocked by what happened in those halls because there is a kind of uh, tabernacle feel to the place. And um, and so I think that that added to the emotion, and and I think that was absolutely intentional on the part of the committee. Yeah, I thought it was very solemn too, mm-hmm. uh, as they presented the facts uh, in the case. Um, and I think one of the interesting things about it, you know, normally in the hearings, congressional hearings, there's a lot of grandstanding among um, congressional members, and there was none of that. And I think that was kind of one of the interesting things about this hearing. Yeah, and it's interesting the point you make because normally when a congressional hearing starts, people kind of wander in ad hoc and they get there when they get there and they mill around. Here you see the committee members walking in as if we were filing in for graduation. Mm -hmm. It's very ritualized and I think that again is it's a production value. It's, Mm -hmm. It's trying to send a message to viewers. 
There was an audience for Thursday night, according to Nielsen, of about 20 million households. That's similar to what you would see for a Sunday night football game. We haven't really seen any of the numbers for uh, Monday's hearing, which was held during the day. I, When it was starting, I was getting an oil change and didn't know if I'd be able to watch it. And where the car dealership I had taken my car to, one of the TVs was on the Golden Girls. One of the TVs was on MASH. So perhaps it was about keeping an apolitical environment at that time. You mentioned you hadn't watched the Monday hearing. There was still some pretty interesting stuff that came out. I was streaming in the waiting room. I was the only one with a device doing that. Um, What made you scream? No, streaming. Streaming. Okay. I wasn't streaming. No, I wasn't that person. No, not not, right. no. Um, But that midday news or that midday hearing you really do lose some of that opportunity that you had in in prime time to capture those those large numbers of viewers yeah but the fact is most big political events whether it's a state of the union address or a major congressional hearing um, or a major speech to a convention um, what we have all learned is it's less the moment because mm-hmm. the, there are very few people who really will sit there unless you're a reporter and carefully listen to everything. Um, it's really what gets picked up, what bites get picked up afterwards. And the Internet Archive has done some really interesting studies with this, looking at what gets picked up and how that resonates with, with people. So I think really, and I think what's interesting, the point you made, Ron, about the production values are that this is very carefully calibrated so things are in bite-sized chunks, Mm -hmm. they're short, and they're made for pickup by other news media. And I think, so I think we are still seeing the resonance of that hearing and, and, People, it's gonna, it's gonna get. It's like an earworm. It's gonna get in people's heads. Yeah. Well, in addition to how highly produced it is on television, it's also being equally as produced online. With the existence of the official January sixth hearing Twitter account, where each of those video clips that are shown, yeah, great point. those yeah, are going yeah. out on Twitter instantaneously mm-hmm. to when they're being entered into the hearing as okay. well. Which, for people who are at work in the middle of the day and mm-hmm. perhaps logging into a cable network or a new newspaper website isn't an option, you can still go back to Twitter and see each of those different elements. There was even a video that was playing on cable news last night, again and again, that was originally put out through Twitter um, of Representative Cheney indicating exactly which uh, federal laws that judges have indicated were likely broken in this. And that also helps create a little bit of an influencer culture as well. The the way to have those go viral mm-hmm. online and through social media so that perhaps if you're not watching a Monday or uh, today's hearing was postponed, so a Thursday hearing, that content is still living out there outside of the real time. Yeah, so I think with all of this, they're creating a narrative mm-hmm. uh, about what happened on January 6th. And I think they've been intentional about that uh, so that the American people can have some kind of understanding about what happened. But I guess the question is, so what's next? So what do they want to come out of this is the next question, I think, Yeah. out of that narrative. Well, they're, they're building a case. It looks pretty strongly like they're building a case for uh, a criminal prosecution. Uh, but I think um, what's gonna, what 
what they're doing and the way they're doing it, I think, is important because we talked uh, last week about um, there not being appointment TV anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, back in Watergate, mm -hmm. everybody gathered around and watched the hearings. That yes. doesn't happen anymore. And so what they're doing, as Amy pointed out, they are utilizing all the, the new media tools mm -hmm. available to make sure that even in an era of no appointment TV, mm -hmm. their message is getting out. Okay, so let's talk about what's happening down in Uvalde, Texas, where journalists continue to toil looking into the police response to the shooting at Robb Elementary School. And it's the law that seems to be complicating their work, the law both literally and figuratively. Now, the law is in the police. They're setting up perimeters that are keeping reporters and camera crews blocks away from uh, areas where there are investigations going on, from where families have memorials, from funerals, and threatening crews with arrests. They're motorcycle gangs that are uh, motorcycle clubs. I'm going to use that word instead. Motorcycle clubs that are out there claiming to represent and support the police in their work. But it seems that there's also actually doesn't seem there is a law in Texas, uh, a, a loophole that is making it downright legal to keep police from having to really talk to the media about this. Talk for a minute about the dead suspect loophole. Yeah, I, and I don't know why they call it the dead suspect loophole, but basically, uh, as I understand it, uh, in Texas, if a case um, is not prosecuted, doesn't actually go to court. Like if the um, suspect is dead? Yeah, okay. which I guess is why it has that name. <laughs> but, um, but if the case doesn't actually go to court, uh, none of the records have to be revealed in public. Mm. And, uh, and that seems to be um, one of the things that is blocking um, media access to public records. So I think, interestingly, there appears to be bipartisan agreement in this Texas state legislature about trying to move a bill that would eliminate this loophole. Uh, because I do think there's a lot of public interest in getting to the bottom of what happened here. And this reminds me a lot uh, you know, I did work for a Texas newspaper at one time, and then later uh, I went back to Texas uh, when uh, Dick Cheney was on a hunting trip that ended badly oh, when, that he, uh, yes, yeah. when he yes when he shot I his host, uh, yeah. mistaking <laughs> his host for a deer, and of course Dick Cheney was the vice president at the time, and it was a big story. And I remember going down to this town on the border, and you get to the courthouse, and uh, the uh, the clerk of the records was the brother-in-law of the ranch manager where this happened. And it's all very uh, small town and incestuous. And Uvalde feels a bit that way to me now, that there's clearly this uh, circle the wagons around the police. There's a lot of controversy about what the police did or didn't do. And, um, and, and that, and I think uh, the media is justifiably suspicious in trying to penetrate that. But luckily, mm -hmm. I think there are people in the state legislature who wanna, wanna help the press here. Yeah, and these stories are already difficult and hard for journalists to cover anyway. And yes. I think um, by them blocking the media from covering these stories and getting the information, because the law enforcement officials have been contradictory in the information that they put out, the journalists are just trying to do their jobs, mm -hmm. uh, and they just want to get the information out about what happened. And I think it's important for the journalists to, to find out what happened uh, and be able to do the jobs uh, that they're there to do, so. One of the things about that bipartisan bill, um, 
Texas is a little bit different than Missouri, different than other states that I've lived in, in that their legislature only meets once every other year. So what are the chances of passing something like that quickly, given that this isn't a year in which the legislature would be meeting normally? Well, that's a good question. uh, That's a very good question. And I think um, the governor could always call a special session. It's been known to happen. We'll see. Okay. Well, we'll see what happens there in Texas. Last week, we talked about a situation that was going on at the Washington Post. Some strife there uh, that was a result of a Twitter war between a male reporter who retweeted a sexist joke and the female reporter who called him out on it and persisted, calling out the staff and the management for not holding everyone there to a higher standard, given the high bar that the Post sets in almost every other aspect of its operation. Well, he was suspended, and she has now been fired. Her termination letter was leaked. What did it say? Uh, It basically said that we can't have a reporter on our staff who is consistently undermining the newspaper and the staff and attacking other staff members uh, on social media. Which seems, in my world, an inappropriate, a proper, because I I can see how that might have sounded like I just said inappropriate, sounds like an appropriate tack to take. And this is one of those things where it's now causing a lot of organizations the Washington Post chief among them, a new social media policy to be presented to the staff today or with before the end of the week, to really rethink how social media policies are written, but also how they are enforced in order to really create a sense of accountability and a sense of um, a behavioral standard that, yeah. that people will be held uh, to an account. Yeah, I think it's going to be important for all news organizations to come up with a clear social media policy and one that they can enforce uh, and create a culture that make it enforceable. Uh, because especially now, we, we're in a generation, we have generations that are using the social media as a way of communicating with each other. Uh, and as these younger journalists come on board, that's going to be more important to have a clear policy in place uh, for the workforce, I think. And I think in most in most organizations, uh, that's going to be important to have. Yeah, I think if you don't have a clear policy in place, it looks, it, it, it inevitably looks like you're playing favorites. Mm-hmm. Why are you doing this with this case, but not doing that with the other case? I think the, the problem, and we've talked a little bit about this, is that um, uh, reporters are encouraged to use social media as a marketing tool and reporters come to organizations with their own personal brand and then you have a conflict of which is more important the personal brand or the brand of the news organization and if it's a legacy news organization like the washington post it has a long established uh, identity and I think uh, too. You you know you get to the question, which really became the issue here: of do you want to keep having fights that undermine the collegial collegial nature of a newsroom in public? I mean, newsrooms are never. Um, Sunnybrook Farm. Yes. Uh, we should have arguments in newsrooms, yes. but do we really have to attack each other in public? And I think that's where the Post came down and said no. Yeah, because this is felt 
like a journal soap opera, basically. It has. <laughs> it has. And one of the things I would also add in terms uh, to having a social media policy to making sure that it can be um, actively enforced and consistently enforced is to also write into it. And this is something I ask students in my engaged journalism class to do as part of their final paper in my class is to examine several different um, social media policies in place at different news organizations, different corporations, knowing that they're also strategic communication students in that class. But one of the actual points they are to write into the policy they create for themselves is when and at what points do I need to revisit this policy and revise it? And I think that's another thing, too, is that we aren't seeing organizations revise these policies often enough as we see that uh, social media platforms either change uh, what functionalities they have on them or change different ways in which they're used or have new ownership or new, new platforms. New platforms come new on board. New platforms come on board yep. entirely. So I think there also needs to be a greater commitment to an annual review on each of those social media policies. These need to be living, breathing documents that change as necessary. One of the other things that came up, and this was also another situation on Twitter, um, another young Washington Post journalist, and I say young because she's younger, than I am. So to me, that I guess is young. Um, Taylor Lorenz, who we actually had one of her stories on our Lynx blog last week when we were hoping to still talk about the verdict in the Johnny Depp Amber Heard case. We ran out of time last week. But there was a story there that she had reported about um, content creators and how social media influencers and content creators had really been able to capitalize on that case specifically. And that story required several corrections, and Taylor Lorenz came under a lot of criticism for that. She went on Twitter in much of that same soap opera sort of way to protect her personal brand and blamed her editor, which has led to a whole a, a, a second discussion about the use of Twitter there. And I guess the question I want to ask each of you, and I know because I have said to reporting students working for me when I send them back to a source with a tough question, blame your editor, make it about me. Is this an opportunity to blame your editor or is she, wh what do you think? Well, we don't know exactly the circumstances. Okay. And I certainly uh, can sympathize with the reporter who has carefully written and reported a story and then an error has been edited into it. Um, but normally, you handle that situation in private with the news source. I'm so sorry that this happened. Or We're going editor. to run a correction. Uh -huh. Exactly. And you work that out. Um, doing it in public seems to me to be a bit of a cheap shot. But again, I think you said the magic words. It's personal brand. People are now very jealous of their reputation and so we see a lot more of this going on but it, it it's the opposite of collegial i mm -hmm. think yeah i think this is another place where we need to have a clear policy mm -hmm. on how this should be settled and how uh, uh in, the, in the within the organization how they've settled those matters uh, and, and how do you go about that okay so this next one maybe it was the editor 
maybe it wasn't. But in the land down under, it's the editor who is accepting full responsibility and apologizing for mistakes made. Yesterday, Bevan Shields, the editor of the Sydney Morning Herald, apologized for mistakes made in its coverage of actress Rebel Wilson's new relationship with fashion designer Ramona Agruma. Columnist Andrew Hornery wrote in Saturday's editions that he was, in his word, gazumped. But I don't know if that's an Australian <laughs> word for scooped or what. So we're just going to quote him there and say he was gazumped by Wilson herself when she announced that Agruma was her new partner. In that column, he wrote that on Thursday, he had given Wilson two days to respond before reporting in his column that she and Agruma were an item. But that he had enough confirmation to run with it, even if she chose not to respond. Friday, the day before that, she tweeted a photo announcing the relationship herself. These are some real 70s and 80s blackmailing moves here. This is something we don't see in 2022. First of all, it wasn't his position to out her. No, it's not Uh, anybody's position to out anybody. anybody. Exactly. So he was just wrong in doing that anyway. Uh, and I saw his column and it was kind of also mean-spirited in a way, the way he wrote it, because it was like he was upset that she came out and before he wrote his story, Wrecked actually. scoop, yeah. Yeah, that he got scooped. He did write an apology, but I'm not sure if it was forced apology uh, that the news organization made him write that letter. Well, the or apology was, was criticized as much yeah. as the column, because it was like, yes. well, I'm, I'm sorry, you're, you're mad. Yeah, so I don't know if that was a sincere apology or uh-huh. if that was just something the organization made him do. Well, it's you know the, it is a kind of fuzzy area because um, it you know, he's a he's a celebrity columnist. Yes, uh, he's a gossip columnist. That is what gossip columnists are always writing about celebrities and who yeah, they're. But, gossip, but, yeah. but okay, I, I will say that that the question here is: Is it fair game if it's someone who is in? a, let us say, non-traditional relationship. And it seems sort of weird that in the 21st century we're talking about this, but yeah. so if 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 I'm dating a man and I don't particularly want it known, is it fair game to write about that too? Um, but what makes this different is that it is a gay relationship and for so many years that was taboo. Um, and so is it still off limits? Um, I, I think it's, yeah. you know, and that's the case he was making in his column. Hey, I'm just a gossip columnist yeah, gossip doing columnist what gossip columnists you know, do. So-and-so was seen out at dinner at yeah. insert name of trendy restaurant in whatever city that might be. I could also see some other really misguided idea that this might be some kind of feel good, you know, tidbit reported because it's Pride Month. And here's a very, very popular actress with a brand new movie on Netflix. You're you're making a face at me like that that does not hold water. I would agree with you. Talk about why not. It doesn't because I mean, that was kind of his excuse for writing the column because it's June Pride Gay Month. Uh, But I I don't think that's the well point. no it would only be appropriate if she were yes giving him the interview information and exactly. saying yeah exactly. and As willingly to going being browbeaten, browbeaten yeah. into yes. sharing but i mean it. this is just a problem with celebrity journalism writ yeah. large it's kind of like a lot of stuff that we really don't need to know it doesn't add to the public sphere of knowledge and how much of it is fair game yeah, yeah. does it add to the context of the story yeah. um is it does the public really the need, need to, to know? know. Exactly. <laughs> okay. You know, 
I want to talk about baseball, Chicago baseball specifically. Oh, me too. This okay. is good. <laughs> You're serious? Okay, good. Okay, so we're going to talk about Chicago baseball specifically, and we're going to talk about how fans of both the North and South Side teams and journalists, lots of journalists, have some questions for both the Marquee Network and NBC Sports Chicago. Each, it seems, have been making some editorial decisions that appear on the surface to be done with the intent of making the teams look good. NBC Sports Chicago, half of that station of which is owned by White Sox and Bulls owner Jerry Reinsdorf, edited out a highly controversial play from last Thursday's game. It was an intentional walk followed by a home run that cost the White Sox the game and sparked a whole lot of discussion that it could also cost Tony La Russa his job. As the play was to happen in the rebroadcast of that game for the next day, a slate was put up on the screen saying that that play had been cut out of the game for time. (laughs) Now let's go to the north side where late last month, the Marquee Network, which is co-owned by Sinclair, uh, Sinclair Broadcast Group and the Chicago Cubs, removed a segment from its roundtable program called The Reporters, which was critical of the Cubs president. Reportedly, a producer interrupted the taping and directed the panelists in a program kind of like this one, recorded as a roundtable, to re-record the segment minus that criticism. Now, the Chicago Sun-Times sports editor has now said that sports reporters, sports journalists from the Sun-Times are no longer allowed to go onto that program. That's a move I endorse. It's one I support right there. Yeah, this is this is a great topic because it really, um, especially as you see more and more news organizations yeah. with smaller and smaller wallets, you see a lot of these arrangements where people with big money or organizations with big money are essentially part of the media. Or you see a lot of organizations like MLB mm-hmm. has its own stable of writers now, mm-hmm. and so does yeah. the NFL. So does the NFL, yeah. So how honest are they going to be? Now, most of the time, I think they're pretty straight down the line because I think these organizations know that if they're not, they lose credibility. But this is Exhibit A. I mean, really? Well, it's Exhibit A and Exhibit B, frankly. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) How nice for Chicago that it happened on On both both ends. So that the Cubs fans can't make fun of the The Sox Sox fans fans or vice versa. It's a a fine line for sports journalists. Uh, You know, are you there to promote the organizations or the, that you're covering, or are you there to actually report on the sports activity that you're covering? I think we even had that situation here a little bit. Um, I won't say the organization, but you know, sometimes we are we there to promote the university sports, or are we there to when there's something happening that we can be actually critical of some of the things that are happening within the sports organization? That's actually one of the things that I bring up with a lot of students who come to me and say that they want to become a sports journalist. And my first, and this is in part because I started out covering sports. And the first thing I'll ask them is, why do you want to become a sport? Because I know everything about the insert name of team here, and it's my team. And, I, and I'm like, oh, put your fandom at the door. Right. How are you going to? cover them independently and what we're also seeing is a lot of those sports journalists we're training here are going to work at some of these sports channels which are co-owned by teams as well so or they're working for the teams themselves themselves. and that does bring some of that into into yeah I, i think i think in the long run the answer is 
and it's true for news, any news organization, our loyalty is to the people who read us, not to the people who sign our paychecks. Exactly. And if you stick with that, your readers, viewers, and listeners will stick with you as well. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I don't think that's much of a problem here anymore than it used to be. No, I would yeah. agree with that. Yeah. Before we go, I want to take a quick second to bid a fond farewell to a member of the Views of the News team. At the end of each week's show, you hear me thank Aaron Hay for making his work, or making his work to make <laughs> us sound good. And just about every weekday, you hear Aaron on the air masterfully pulling off the hosting duties during All Things Considered. And over on Classical FM, Aaron's going to be moving soon and today is his last day working with us on the program Aaron it's been a tremendous five years and thank you for all that you do for us here thank you we're gonna miss you oh I will miss this place so much (laughs) (laughs) with that we are pretty much out of time for this week I'd like to thank you for spending the last half hour with us you can read more about each of the topics we talked about on today's program on our links blog that's under both the programs and podcast tabs at kbia.org we're also available wherever you get your podcast downloads including iTunes Spotify and Stitcher you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter our handle there is at views on KBIA these are all great ways to watch and listen to the program Leave us comments, questions, and see what we'll be talking about next week. Thanks to RJI's Travis McMillan and to Aaron Hay for handling the audio. Tim Pilcher composed that theme music.